and we welcome you to the Thursday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm very, very happy that we can have with us uh, in the studios uh, for uh, most of today's morning show, Anne Morse Hambrock. She has been on the morning show before. Many of you know her, particularly as a very, very gifted harpist and very capable harp teacher. Uh, also, she has been an indispensable partner uh, in more ways than one to uh, her husband, John uh, Hambrock, with his comic strip, uh, The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee, which in many respects is their comic strip, The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee. Uh, Anne Morse Hambrock has uh, provided some of the uh, some of the artwork, the coloration and so on for that uh, comic strip, and I'm sure also been a, uh, a very valued advisor to John. And also Anne was the moving force behind uh, a huge and entertaining event. And what was the exact name of that annual event. The Kenosha Festival of Cartooning. And so cartoonists from all across the country and in various facets of the business would uh, would come to Kenosha uh, to speak on the morning show and to do various uh, public presentations. And uh, that's uh, an event that people enjoyed very, very much, and we hope someday it will uh, return to the calendar. It's on a bit of a hiatus at the moment. But for as interesting as all of that is, the reason that Anne Morsambrock is here today is primarily to talk about a wonderful new book of hers that has just been published called Conversations with the Infinite. We will be talking about uh, the inspiration for this book and talking about a few excerpts from it. Uh, also, Anne Morsambrock is going to be playing tonight at the Holocaust Remembrance Day service, which is at the Kenosha Public Museum tonight at 7 o'clock. And the uh, the speaker is Holocaust survivor Nathan Toffel. And I have pulled from the archives my interview with him from a number of years ago. And we will replay just a portion of that at the end of the hour today. And Morse Hambrock, uh, it's great to have you back on the morning show. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, Anne has her harp. She's going to be playing the harp tonight at the Kenosha uh uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day event, as I think I said. And she's also going to be uh, bringing her harp along for her book signing, which will be at Jack Andrea uh, this Saturday from noon until uh, 2. So she is going to regale us with a little bit of, of harp uh, a little bit later on in the hour. And let's talk about this uh, intriguing book. And I am assuming that you are responsible for all of it. That yes. is both the words and the illustrations. Yes. yes. Um, maybe ahead of us talking specifically about the book, you could say a word about just how much both writing and artistic work has, how long that has been an important part of your life. Does this date all the way back to your childhood? Well, um, I'd love to say yes, <laughs> but I think I'd have to say no in that I probably didn't, doodled and drew like most people do when they're young. Um, and I took art classes and I enjoyed them. And I actually did major in art um, briefly in college. Um, I transferred to another institution that had a, a more demanding harp teacher. Uh, there was no longer any time to be a double major uh, once I did that. <laughs> but I, I did do a year as a core art major, so I, I do have that background. Um, but just harp, haven't employed it as much. Right. But Harp, in a sense, kind of crowded that out of the. It sort did. Of the it did crowd it out, and and it it crowded out um, most things because 
I think a lot of us, as we're planning out our lives, we we build around the thing that we think will feed us, uh, you know, the thing that seems sustainable and um, that you can turn into a profession. And turning writing or drawing into a profession seemed a little more out of reach in my life than music. So talk about the ways in which these pursuits have still managed to be a part of your life from time to time. And and particularly, I would like to have you spell out a little more clearly than I certainly did uh, the work that you have done uh, on your husband's comic strip, The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee. Sure. Um, well, uh, I often tell the story that, that I I believe I infected John with the love for comics because he <laughs> he he read Mad Magazine and he had Peanuts, Charlie Brown collections, but he was not the hardcore newspaper comic strip fan. That that was kind of me. And, and when we got married, I was debating what I wanted my future to look like, and I flirted with the idea of comedy writing. Um, and I flirted with the idea of stand-up, and uh, storytelling wasn't yet a thing. But mm. I, I think... I, I think I was already kind of building to that in in my mind that idea that I that that I liked storytelling. Like my favorite comedians weren't the they were never the insult comics. They were never the boom boom uh, vaudevillian joke tellers. They were always the storytellers. Mm. You know, like Bob Newhart. You know, right. uh, the way they could spin out a story and really put you in the moment and and enlighten your mood, and that was always important to me. And so when John came home one day and said he wanted to have, be a cartoonist and have a comic strip, we actually started one together. It was called Second Nature, and it had talking animals. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, we self-syndicated that for a while and had reasonable amount of success with it, but the syndicates weren't interested in it. And we started building our family, and my attention was drawn a little more elsewhere. And then when he did finally get a syndication contract with The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee, I settled into a role that was partially editor, partially consultant, partially gag writer. Um, Every once in a while, I'll write a complete strip uh, for him. Uh, More often than not, I might give him an idea, um, or uh, we might work on a series together. When he does a series, we'll often work on that together to, to to help build the story in that instead of just the uh, the joke lines and you know so it's hard to describe what my role is because sometimes it's very very small and sometimes it's bigger hmm. uh, and then of course I color them all right and that's that's a big deal that uh, is a big deal <laughs> it's a hard job I mean, yeah and and that and and uh, if the coloration weren't just so uh, it would probably in a sense draw too much attention or be a distraction or be a hindrance to whatever sort of the central a visual message of a strip is. I mean, in some ways, I suppose yeah. the best coloriza- coloration uh, draws no attention to itself. Well, except I break that rule <laughs> six ways to sideways because um, when when Addison started, the internet carrying comic strips was still very young. Hmm. Uh, it's hard to believe it really wasn't that long ago, but it wasn't a common thing. And um, the average newspaper did not carry the daily comics in color, only the Sundays. You know, Sundays have been in color forever. But dailies were always in black and white. And I think the Racine Journal Times, they still are. But um, Howard Brown believed passionately in coloring the comics every 
day. <laughs> uh, and most cartoonists don't provide that color. The, um, a company called American Color or other outsourcing, they'll, they'll color those dailies. Um, the cartoonists pay a lot of attention to the Sunday color still, but uh, at least that's the way it was when it started. And so um, I had this advantage that I could see Edison in the Kenosha News every day in color. Mm. And I decided pretty early on that my job was to make people look at that one first. Ah. So, in fact, I make the color pop out. You know, hmm. I, I used a sort of a color palette from the old Warner Brothers cartoons. Uh, think of Marvin the Martian. You know, you think of brilliant color when you look at that. Or the old Marvel comics. Right. I remember when I was growing up, uh, the Marvel comic books were always super, super colorful. Yeah. Um, so I was really trying to pull that. In And your average comic strip does not have that kind of color in it. Right. It'll have a little splash here or there. A lot of times things are the color they're supposed to be. Uh, in Edison, things are almost never the color they're supposed to be unless it's food or um, metal. Uh, a lot of times I'll make metal the, the appropriate color. But the couch, people people have written in about this. They they want to know why the couch and the chairs keep changing color. You know, like every other day it's a different color. The, the color of the furniture depends on the color of the clothing of the character who's sitting on the furniture. Hmm. So if Orville's sitting on the couch wearing his orange jacket, the color's going to look one way. If Don is sitting on the couch wearing his blue shirt, and the color is going to look another Interesting. way. Interesting. Because I figure the average reader doesn't care. <laughs> right, right. Well, I have to say it it works for the brilliant mind of Edison Lee. I mean, the choice that you're making, and it makes sense. And I've, I've honestly never stopped to think about, you know, in a real conscious way, boy, I'm glad Anne uses brilliant color. It's just, it feels as of a piece mm-hmm. um, with with kind of that, that well, and, and the other thing I have to say is depicted. he gives me totally free reign. You know, he the only time he'll say to me he wants he might have a specific um, idea in mind if it's an outdoor scene and the mountains are supposed to have a certain sense of distance or whatever. Or he might say, uh, "Let me handle that panel. I have a very specific idea for that." And a good example is he did one years ago. Uh, it was a parody on a scene from The Godfather. And he knew the he had the sort of bullets whizzing by and the shirt flying and just like a still shot from that movie. And he knew exactly how he wanted to do that. And so mm. he'll step in and say, I'm, I'm going to handle that. And I say, you go right ahead <laughs> because you will do that uh, way better than I can. Huh. Um, but mostly he just says, you know, here, here they are. Color them as you see fit. Wow. So I'm very lucky that way. Most cartoonists give a lot of direction for their color. Right. You are given, as you said, free reign. Well, uh, what you're really here today, of course, to talk about is not so much The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee, although all of that's been really interesting, but to talk about this new book of yours called Conversations with the Infinite. And one of the first things we should say is it doesn't have any color at all except (laughs) black and white and and shades of gray. Uh, Let's start first with just kind of the basic appearance of the book and... uh, and, and kind of its uh, intriguing simplicity. First of all, when did you first get the idea about putting something together like this? Well, I've been doing this material since 2015. And I call it material because it's difficult to encompass. You can either think of it as a webcomic or you can think of it as illustrated poetry. Uh, I originally thought of it as kind of a webcomic. And then, uh, and for people who don't know what a webcomic is, that's any sort of comedic or, well, not always funny, 
any graphic and and written material that's going to appear on the internet, uh, and they're often self-published. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I thought of it first as that, and then um, a publisher approached me and said, you know, I, I think you should think of these in terms of poetry. And as soon as he said that, uh, something really clicked in my head, and I went back and I looked at all the writing I'd done, and I revised it on a more sort of um, poetical bent, shall we say, you know, like choosing my phrases and my line breaks more carefully instead of just like a casual tweet-sized uh, mm-hmm. statement. And um, so I, I started doing this in 2015, and uh, then the idea for a book collection, I guess I've been, I've had this in the works for about a year and a half. I don't think we've yet said that uh, one of the things that makes this book intriguing is that it's these short little statements that alternate between something that you are saying to God with statements that God is saying to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I just, I just find that a, a wonderful idea, so fertile in, in a lot of different ways. Tell us about the idea of coming up with a book that, in a sense, shares us in alternation. I don't mean in perfect alternation, right. but in rough alternation, uh, two sides of this, in a sense, conversation. Well, I began it not really so much as a conversation as just me you know, talking to God with whatever I felt like saying. And I think now would be a good time to read the first one I ever wrote. Sure. Dear God, thank you for helping me find that long-lost needle in the carpet with my foot. You're hilarious. (laughs) So I wrote that while driving cross-country back from San Diego in the Utah desert um, with all my family asleep. Uh, you have a lot of time to think because there isn't much going on in the Utah desert <laughs> and you can't get a signal on the radio <laughs> half the time. Uh, we had a friend who had been diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's, a very talented uh, cartoonist named Richard Thompson. Hmm. He did a feature called Cul-de-Sac. I don't know that the local papers ever carried it, but it was a oh, I've seen very that, charming thing. It, yeah. was, it was one of the only features that Bill Watterson emerged from hiding in which to say he thought it was fantastic. Mm. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't do that. Uh, well, Richard was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And my we weren't conversing very much anymore because his, um, his illness had progressed to the point that uh, it was more email. And I found myself sending what I thought were the most ridiculous emails. Uh, and saying the most ridiculous things when I did see him in person that you say when someone is facing a terrible diagnosis Mm. and you don't know what to say to them. So you say silly things like uh, when he moves into his new house, you say, gosh, I I hope you like the new house when he hates the new house because they moved into the new house because it has no stairs Uh, Mm. and his children love the old house. You know, and you know he doesn't. Like, I shouldn't say he hates the new house, but it's it wouldn't have been his first choice right. to move into the new house. I shouldn't put words into Richard's mouth, especially now that he's not no longer with us. And it, well, and it certainly doesn't represent a choice on his part right. because of right. the normal reasons you choose a new house. This right. is so, in a sense so chosen as, from unhappy circumstances. Yeah. So as you talk to people that are in these circumstances, you often find yourself just saying the most banal, cheery you know, chirpy things, which to some people might not be a problem, but to someone with a humor as dry as Richard's and as intelligent as he was, 
I just felt more and more like an idiot every time I mm. wrote anything to him that had a cheerful little platitude in it. And I thought, I started thinking, what could I write to Richard that would make him laugh? Uh, and the first thing I thought of was that needle, this idea of almost a passive-aggressive relationship with, uh, with the infinite, with whatever God you know you you believe in or would li- like to speak to. And so I thought, well, when I get home, I'm going to send Richard. I'm going to write 30 of these. I'm going to send him one every morning for a month. I'm not even going to ask if he wants them. I'm just going to pop them in his email box uh, to you know see if I can cheer him up a little bit to at least make him laugh once you know in the day and i absolutely did not send any drawings you do not send uh doodles to a cartoonist of the caliber of uh, richard thompson <laughs> uh and um and i i have the feedback that he that he did enjoy them uh after that i thought i should do more with these and then other friends in the cartooning business said have you thought of illustrating them and that's that's when I started illustrating them. An important thing to know about the illustrations is that they are not they're not a depiction of the poem. They are sort of a teaser image so that you can look at the image and and it looks interesting, but it really only comes into focus for you if you've read the copy. Hmm. So for example, the one on the um, cover of the book says, "Dear God, opportunity knocked on my front door today." I was in my bathrobe. Timing is everything. <laughs> when I asked some of my friends for their ideas of how to draw that, they all uh, drew things for me that were like a woman standing at the open door peeking through it. And I said, well, you've already, you've already told the joke before anybody's read anything. So I decided instead to simply draw the door knocker, you know, that the someone would use to knock on the door. Hmm. So... So the illustrations are a companion, but they don't so much stand on their own. Um, but the writing can stand on its own. Mm-hmm. Well, that's my hope anyway. Right, absolutely. For those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Anne Morse-Hambrock about her book called Conversations with the Infinite. And uh, you're calling these poems. I mean, some people would look at them and not necessarily think of them as, as poems and just in maybe the most ordinary sense that we sometimes think of poems but but uh but i can see how in a sense for you and and for some readers they they would be poems how are you using that term poem well they certainly don't rhyme right (laughs) (laughs) uh i'm using that term poem if you look at a lot of the poetry that is uh very very popular right now rupi kaur for instance uh it is not it is not laid out in poetical terms. It's prose. It's prose poetry. So these are prose poems. Right. Uh, I heard a writer not long ago at Carthage say something to the effect that that the essence of poetry is saying much with little. Yes. <laughs> yes. And when I write one of these, uh, the first task is to get the sentiment. But the second task is to start eliminating words, you know, to... Uh, to figure out how succinctly you can communicate what you're trying to communicate. And I try to do the same thing with the drawing. I might draw a very detailed drawing and then start erasing. Uh, I'm trying to knock it down to as few lines, uh, only the lines that I need. And and sort of the same thing, only the words that I need. Hmm. How would you say you have worked on this book in the sense that of kind of that editing process when we're talking about writing that is in a sense 
at its heart very brief and and in some respects very simple. And I don't mean simple-minded or Mm -hmm. simplistic, but simple in the very best sense of the word. It's part of what makes this book so engrossing. Uh, But how does one work with that kind of material? Because we often, when we think about editing, we think about something quite voluminous that needs to be edited down or or massively rewritten in all kinds of different ways or reordered. And obviously, we're talking about editing in this case that is going to be, in a sense, much more subtle, uh, maybe much more delicate, and I should think also very challenging. You know, maybe maybe it would be. Uh, I think for me, it isn't because of the background of now 15 years working, well, over 25 since we started trying to, but working in the field of comics. Uh, you have to knock your dialogue down really far to, for a comic strip, especially as they get smaller and smaller in the newspaper. You don't have room for a lot of words, and you have to make your point quickly. Um, so I've always, in in all the writing that I've done, I'm always alert to how does something scan? Uh, how will the reader read this to themselves in their head? Where will they pause? How can I direct where they will pause? Um, does that word have too many syllables? Is that word n- not illustrative enough? Does that word, is there a better word that pulls a, an image to mind? instead of just being a straightforward description of what happened. Um, and you you have to be very minimalist when you're working in that space. Mm. So I would say one of the things that informs my editing on these is I'm publishing them on the Internet, and people breeze through the Internet mm. extraordinarily quickly. Right. So you have very little time to catch them, and then they're moving on uh, to something else. So right. too many words, and, and they're not going to... Uh, they're not going to stay with you. Right. So part of the secret of this impact is, in a sense, that, again, what we were saying, what poetry is saying a lot with little, yes. <laughs> with relatively few words and with relatively sparse illustration. And uh, you've done that so very, very well. Uh, I've enjoyed looking through the book. And uh, uh, I, I want to touch on a couple that I uh, really leapt out at me as, as especially interesting, maybe things that I could... Uh, identify with. For instance, uh, one of the messages from God, so to speak, is, Dear Anne, no, it's not your imagination. Your life is a giant sliding square puzzle. <laughs> and of course, we should, uh, the, your, your illustration uh, helps us understand that, you know, you're, you're meaning one of those little toys that uh, probably yeah, a lot that of us have. Yeah, you have to slide it, all the pieces around and, and, and take a million steps to get everything where it belongs. Right, to yeah. get the numbers in order or to yeah. make the picture that's created. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the moment that you thought that that is kind of what your life is like? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't remember the exact moment, but I know that I've had the thought more than once. <laughs> uh, Probably a lot of us have. <laughs> well, no, I I think I can I can trace it back to having to um, absorb a household after the death of a relative. That it, as all the new items came in, I had to decide what to like what moves where. Mm. You know, so in, in the first time I thought of it was probably in a very concrete way. Right. And then I realized that my life always looks like that. That, <laughs> that there's yes. always more to deal with than there is an organizational structure in place right. uh, to deal with it. T- towards the same line, uh, uh, another message from God you have is, Dear Anne, when your house is a trash pit, 
you should still invite your friends over for tea. They will understand. Yes. That's a great thought. I don't know if you actually live that out, but... I have tried to live that out. It doesn't mean I don't still throw things in a closet before people arrive. Uh, but I have tried to bear that in mind because uh, I've watched myself and so many people I know cut themselves off socially because they feel, oh, their house isn't presentable or they don't feel presentable and or they don't feel like cooking or they can't make a coffee cake or, you know... As time goes up, I, I feel that I just want to see my friends. The The rest of that doesn't matter. Hmm. And so, you know, you're, you're mentioning these ones from God. I have another one from God here. Dear Anne, you needn't check the expiration date on that bag of corn chips you just bought. They'll be gone by supper. <laughs> so uh, you asked, you know, about the conversation, and I kind of strayed away from that. At first, I was just writing things to God, and then some readers contacted me and said, what about the other side of it? Are you are you going to have anything from the other side? And I thought, well, I, I really should consider that. And then mm. I did a few of them. And once I started doing them, I realized that there were, not only were there so many things that could be said better from the other point of view, but that this gets more at the heart of this work. This is This is not a terribly religious work. It's not tied to any official religion or denomination, you can enjoy these even if you don't believe in any God at all or any religion at all. But I find that most of us, we want someone we can talk to. Mm. We want someone not only that we can talk to, there are things we'd like to know. And once upon a time, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch where uh, Somebody was sitting on a park bench with, I don't know if it was St. Peter or whatever, and and they got to ask all the questions they wanted Mm. to ask, like, how many bugs did I eat? (laughs) Uh, You know, and they were silly questions like that. And I realized that that most of us have a a yearning kind of for that, that that relationship. We we don't just want to talk. We want to feel someone's listening. Right. And that maybe they would answer. Right. And and maybe shedding light. And Yes. I wanna, we want illumination. Sure. I want to actually mention what, what uh, as I looked through the book, what struck me as the most serious one in, in, the, in the book, at least the most serious that I saw, was uh, from God. Uh, Dear Anne, what part of love one another and the golden rule do people not understand? I think I was pretty clear. Yes. That's probably about as theological as Yeah, as the that's book about gets. as theological as that one gets. Yeah. But there are a lot of, you know, some of the ones from God are funny, like, like the ones that we've just read. But some of them are meant to be quite serious, you know. Th- messages like stop getting in your own way, uh, you know. I mm. mean, that's not one that's really in here. But that, that sort of idea, you know, sure. don't be so hard on yourself. Uh, think about this. Relax. Uh, you know, it's not as bad as you think. Right. Um, and once in a while, those uh, observations, those wise observations come from you as when you say, uh, dear God, so I went to the party store and discovered that today's parties are mostly about sugar and plastic. Yes. <laughs> and that kind of gets us thinking about the stuff that we fill our lives with. I couldn't believe it. I wrote that one after I walked into, I had to get something for somebody's party. And I just couldn't find anything in the store that wasn't either made of sugar or plastic. <laughs> 
Well, it is a delightful book, start to finish. It's in an interesting format with a spiral at the top, and it's uh, uh, the kind of book that one could kind of drop in and uh, read and walk away from and come back to. It's also to. designed with that spiral so that it will stand up on end. Ah. Uh, and and I believe they have it displayed that way at, at Jack Andrea, uh, so that you can pick one that you like and set it up at your workstation or your nightstand or, you know. Excellent. Again, it is Conversations with the Infinite, sometimes funny, sometimes inspirational, always true, published by Liddle Press, which is L-I-D-D-L-E. And again, it's on sale at Jack Andrea uh, this Saturday from noon to two. And Anne is going to have her harp with her and will will. be playing a little bit uh, for that event. And she's playing tonight for the uh, Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day. it would be great to finish out with a couple minutes of your heart playing, if you like. And what that is it you fantastic. want to? What would you like to play for us? I'm going to play uh, mostly when I do take my harp to readings and things. I'm playing my own music that I've written. So this is uh, the title is unimportant. All you need to know is that it begins in wintertime, goes through till spring, fall, and then back to winter again. Very good. And more Sambrock.
harpist Ann Moore Sambrock. Thank you so much for uh, blessing us with that beautiful music. She will be playing tonight at the Kenosha Public Museum for the Holocaust Remembrance presentation there. It begins at 7 o'clock. And the speaker this year is Nathan Tuffel, born in 1928 in Poland. And uh, from a morning show conversation from many years ago, here is part of Nathan Tuffel's story. At this point, I'm asking him to talk about uh, when he first remembers life changing for the Jews in the small town in Poland where he grew up. Well, I went to public school, which happened to be next door to our house, and I also went to Hebrew school, but in public school, you were constantly kind of, I would say, downgraded, and anti-Semitism was very, very harsh. As a child, I would ask constantly, why, what, what's the difference, Jew and this, you know, the parents really tried to avoid the subject, but anti-Semitism was there. Because I remember as a child, they used to be uh, beating up of Jews, breaking windows after uh, Easter holiday or Christmas. And, and um, the teaching in school wasn't uh, very uh, much paid towards the Jewish kids. Uh, the emphasis was very... Uh, avoidable as far as a Jew is concerned. They didn't want to uh, teach too many Jews about anything. I felt because uh, in a class where we were a minority, uh, most of the questions and everything else I remember were asked to non-Jews. Hmm. Do you, I, I would hope that there were at least a few exceptions that at least some of your schoolmates who were not Jewish, uh, were more uh, accepting of you than it sounds like most most young people were? Oh, sure. I mean, you can't categorize it. That's 100% of anything, you know. Mm-hmm. There were some exceptions. Uh, we, um, we, we had a lot of Jew, non-Jewish friends, and we played with, but most of the kids in, that I especially remember were friends that I went to Hebrew school and they were Jewish. Mm. And, uh, and uh, you know, when you live in a situation where anti-Semitism exists and, uh, and it's constantly preached about the, the, the anti-Semitism, and you kind of live with it and you kind of accept it as, as is. Mm. But um, I felt that the adults kind of took it more seriously than an eight, nine, ten-year-old kid. Sure. Now, we sometimes hear about how um, young Jewish children growing up in the 1930s would sometimes experience little by little kind of the encroachment of, of something very ominous in which, I mean, one day they can't go to such, a, such and such a swimming pool anymore or, or uh, suddenly one day... They are no longer permitted to uh, buy candy in a certain store. Uh, do you remember anything like that uh, about sort of daily life uh, changing in your community as events sort of uh, escalated in the 30s? Well, we, we lived in an area which the, uh, it, it was a city or town that was kind of like... Uh, 
encircled, and there were a lot of Jewish stores. And uh, if we knew that the person was anti-Semite, so we wouldn't go into that place. We just avoided it automatically. We knew there was a lot of places on one street. There were uh, Gentile stores that they didn't appreciate Jewish customers, so we just didn't go there. As a child, you know, going for candy and stuff like this, you were, didn't pay that much emphasis. But the adults knew not to go into any place where you weren't wanted. So, um, uh, it's it's very difficult for me to go into details like that because as a child you don't appreciate the things that happen. Right. You know, so... uh, it, it was it, it was you lived in an anti-Semitic state. I mean, let's face it. The document stated that you were a Polish citizen of Jewish descent. So you, you were constantly reminded, and you also lived in a state where there was no separation between church and state. So the church elected the government who they felt was against the Jews. Right. I was going to say it was church and state, and the, and the church of the state was not your church. I mean, it was not your religion, of course, at all. No. And that no, changed everything about no. your life. So right. so then describe to us uh, when the story begins to change dramatically in your community and specifically for your family. At what point do you become uprooted? Well, since the, soon after the war, or before the war started, there was already uh, a lot of German Jews arriving, and you could hear as a child the adults whispering that uh, the uh, tragedy is already uh, appearing, but uh, they also kept it away from, especially from my sister who was young, and I was uh, very young, the youngest one, and uh, we just heard them whisper, especially when the Jews from Germany arrived, what the atrocities are happening over there. But then soon after that, when the war started, and we heard that that the Germans were approaching the town, that's where the atrocities started, when uh, my father and I, the rest of the family who was at home, walked out from the basement and we heard the Germans arriving towards our house because you could hear him from distance because they wore steel-plated shoes and or boots. And we heard him. My father and I walked out in the basement kind of, you know, more or less trying to say something in German, which my father spoke. So they beat him up right away, and that was that was very traumatic to me as far as I'm concerned because I was a child, and no child won't see a father getting beaten up. Oh, it had to be so frightening. Right. Uh, do Am I remembering history correctly that this is the year 1939 as Correct. Germany in, invades Poland? So you are 10 or 11 years old at the time. I, I would say approximately 10, 10 and 11 years. 11 years old. The reason I'm saying approximately... I didn't, you see, we celebrate our birthday according to Jewish holidays. Mm. So um, you were either born a day between this holiday or day after the holidays. But I remember prior to being, you know, on the verge of being eliminated from the city of Radomish, 
And my parents knew the consequences, so they said, you were born in such and such state, so approximately it's my, it's my 11th year that, hmm. or that, that, that has happened. Uh, at any rate, uh, you were, you were uh, young to be taking in such a, a frightening sight as that. Do you remember your father trying to offer you some kind of explanation or, or comfort in the wake of that? I mean, how did your parents respond to these frightening events as far as you were concerned. Do you have any memory of that? Well, sure, I do, and it doesn't let go. It's constantly, the whole episode never goes away for one moment. You live with it day in and day out, and uh, when it got progressively worse, when the Gestapo and the SS start coming into town, and they started uh, beating up the Jewish people, no matter where and what and how, and they were even burning facial hair. And since I didn't have to wear a Star of David because I was not 13, or my arm bent, so you could see that a lot of it is happening. And they used, they came into the houses, they confiscated the furs, the silver, the gold, anything valuable, liquor or anything. And there was a constant search. They were searching everywhere and anywhere. And if you didn't tell them where anything was, they would beat you up. And uh, a, a lot of times in situations like this, the parents, especially my parents, tried to hide me and my younger sister from seeing what's going on, and it was a constant whisper, but we could see what's happening. And I did not, in all honesty, realize the consequences because I don't think as a child you could think that way. The adults knew more what's going to go on. But then... I think it was in the year 1940 or 41, if not mistaken exactly. My parents already knew because a bunch of trucks and SS guards of various uniforms, like for instance the people from the Baltic countries, they joined the SS, Ukrainians too, they wore black uniforms. And they came into the town and... Um, they were in the center of town. They were there with trucks, and um, they were coming in a tremendous amount of soldiers. I think I mentioned the Gestapo, too, and on that occasion, um, they started picking out young Jewish men. And one of the men they picked out was my brother, and that was supposed to be after the war that I found out, or later on I found out from my brother what the function was, and he was picked, and uh, I didn't know what happened, and I drove my bicycle and I passed the Gestapo, and they yelled up to stop, and I didn't. And they took out the guns, they were going to shoot me, brother saw it in the window where he was, and he ran out and begged him that he should let me go. And he saved my life. And the next day, the, or evening before the next day, the evening before the next day, my father and mother and my youngest sister, they hired a man, a gentleman with a horse and wagon, but th that was the only transportation that we had. And they... They and my sister and I went on the on the wagon and we drove to the city of called of Tarnov.
where my older sister lived with her husband and child, and they lived in the ghetto. Mm. We arrived there in the ghetto, and we stayed there for a period of time, which I can't exactly remember. And uh, uh, while being there, one given day, a gentleman came into the room, and all of a sudden, my sister and my nephew, my father and mother, went into the bathroom, or bedroom, rather, bedroom. You know, I'm getting a little excited. When no, I no, I understand. And my brother-in-law grabbed a, a coat and put a coat on me and my sister, and we looked in awe because we didn't know what's happening, and I see a crack in the door from the bedroom. My parents were looking, and you know what? Every time I speak about it, I get very emotional. There was no goodbye or nothing. My brother-in-law rushed us out, and we went on a truck, and my brother-in-law, because I was crying, he told us not to cry, not to say a word, not to call for anything. And they covered us up with canvas, and we were supposed to be extremely quiet, and, and we sat in the back of the truck, and he went through the ghetto guard, and they asked him if he had anything, and he said no, he was empty, and they let it go. Hmm. And that's where we arrived in a camp called Smotska. And, kind of, and what kind of camp was this? This was a labor camp. It was a German army camp. The, mm. they, the people that were there constructed roads and other things for the German army. Mm. And when I got there, my four sisters, or three sisters rather, because the, my sister was with me, made it four. Three sisters were there, and they were working in there, and they must have hid some valuables to give to the gentlemen to bring us out to that camp because they knew that the ghetto was going to be liquidated, so they brought us out there. So this was a narrow escape. Correct. Uh, this was a narrow escape for you from being almost surely killed. Uh, in the in, ghetto, yeah. In, in the ghetto. Right. So who right, was because the young children had no possible of survival. Right. So... Who is it then that made that trip to the labor camp in your family? Uh, to the labor camp, my three sisters were there. They were already there. Right. And you made this trip by truck, you and who else? And my younger sister. Hmm. And left behind then were? My parents and my nephew, my sister, and my brother-in-law. Hmm. And as you said, what made that especially heartbreaking was yeah, no possibility well, for goodbye. Imagine a young child taken away from their parents and and not saying goodbye or nothing, so yeah. not know where you're going. And if he had set in, and it, it, it was very, it, it, it's up to this particular moment, even it yeah. kind of shakes me. Yeah, Nathan Toffel, Holocaust survivor, he speaks tonight at the Kenosha Public Museum. Uh, their Holocaust Remembrance Day event is at 7 o'clock.